Good evening. I would ask you to please open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. I didn't get to come to this uh, location last year. I don't remember where I was, but I was out of, out of town. And so it's a blessing to finally be in Hemet and meet many of you. I've really enjoyed getting to know Joe. And I am very glad that he is working here in this church. It's been an honor to know him. And let us pray as we begin. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we ask your blessing now upon the reading and preaching of your word. Jesus Christ, God the Son, we ask that you would speak to us right now, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would speak to your people your words, and that your sheep might hear your voice and know it, know the voice of their Savior, and listen to it and benefit and be blessed by it. Holy Spirit, accompany the word, protect and guard the word, keep it true, keep it pure, and work within the hearts of each one here to build them up and sanctify them, that as they hear the gospel, their faith might be renewed, as they hear the law, their obedience might be renewed, that each and every one of us would grow in submission and enjoy through the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every four months, our local association of churches gathers together for a quarterly meeting, And it's a way of uh, promoting fellowship and seeing our unity in a combined worship service. And so I hope that you enjoy the quarterlies as as, as much as I do. It's also a great way to hear other pastors from the association and to benefit from their teaching and preaching gifts. But let me ask you this question. Are the quarterly meetings of our association, are, are the quarterly meetings what we do? Are the quarterly meetings the association that we enjoy and are members of? Are they the sum total of what it means for our churches to be in association? To put it another way, what would it take for us, what would we have to do to perpetuate and continue this association? If what we do is have quarterly gatherings, all we need to do is keep having quarterly gatherings, and that's what our association is, and so keep doing it, and there you have an association moving on for the future. So is the future of this association, therefore, as simple as having more quarterly gatherings? If that's what we are, then that's all that we have to do. But I think that you would understand that we are much more than this, are we not? Because the church is not the building, it's the people that attend the church, the members of the church. And so also the association is not just a list of churches and their addresses, but rather you are the association of churches. And so for this association of churches to grow and to perpetuate and to continue, something has to happen with you and with other people joining us as individuals. We are the association. And so the association is not so much uh, the churches. It's not the gathering of the churches. It's the churches who gather. And so if this association is to be perpetuated and continued, that must take place in the local churches that then gather in quarterly meetings like this one. And so what, therefore, should the local churches, therefore, what should the association do in order to persevere and last and grow and mature? That is a question that I want to ask and answer this evening, and we will find the answer to that in the Word of God in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. At the last quarterly meeting in San Bernardino, John Miller, if you recall, preached from Colossians. And so now this is going to be standard until we finish the book. The next preacher must go on and continue in this book, I guess. No, that won't be necessary. Colossians chapter 2, let's read verses 6 and 7 again, which we heard in the reading previously. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now to cover this sermon, we're going to have four points. Beginning, of course, with the first one, which is this. The message of grace. The message of grace. In Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul gives us a program or a model for growth in the Christian life, both as individuals... And as a church, or even as churches. 
he addresses, Paul addresses the Colossians as a collective group. All of you, church in Colossae, all of you, as you all have received Christ Jesus, so you all ought to walk in him. The the words that Paul uses are plural. As you all have received Christ, so you all are to walk in him. The GA was in Georgia, so they say, as y'all have received Christ, y'all are to walk in him. But that is not English, and we do not recognize it without an interpreter. If we have an interpreter, then we can listen to such language, but we don't. So you all, as you received, you all are to walk, which is the the point is there is a model here for everybody. It's a plural model for all of us. And it begins with something. The model for growth and and ongoing uh, continuation begins somewhere. It begins with the Colossians receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. So let's ask some questions and go through this a little bit. How did the Colossians receive Christ Jesus, the Lord? Paul tells us actually in chapter 1 of Colossians. I'd ask you to turn back to chapter 1 of Colossians with me. How did the Colossians receive Christ Jesus, the Lord? Paul tells us that it wasn't Paul who preached to them. Paul didn't know them personally. It was a man named Epaphras whom Paul had sent to them. And Epaphras preached to the Colossians. And these individuals, these Colossians, believed. They believed what Epaphras said to them. Paul says in verse 4 that they have faith in Jesus Christ and that they have hope laid up in heaven. So Epaphras goes and says something to the Colossians. They believe it and therefore have hope laid up in heaven. And and Paul says what this is. He he tells us what Epaphras said in verse 6. He said that it's a word of truth Namely, the gospel. Epaphras preached the word of truth, which is the gospel, and the Colossians believed it. And Paul tells us, the way he describes it is that they came to know the grace of God in truth. They came to know the grace of God. So therefore, the Colossians' spiritual life, where did it begin? It began when they heard a message of grace. A message of Jesus Christ, a message of hope laid up in heaven. And when they heard that message of grace, they received the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. They believed the message of grace. So what is the message of grace? What is the word of truth? What is the gospel? Paul also tells us that in chapter 1. Look at verses 12 and 14 of chapter 1. Paul tells us that God the Father qualifies us to have a heavenly inheritance. God the Father makes us fit. He makes us able. He changes us in such a way that we have a heavenly inheritance. How does he do this? Paul tells us in those same verses that he moves us from death in Adam under Satan's ownership to life in Christ under Jesus' ownership. He moves us from that domain of darkness and translates us. He he transfers us to the kingdom of the beloved son. And he calls this redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the word of truth, the message of grace, the gospel is that there is forgiveness of sins and a movement away from death in Adam under Satan to life in Christ. And we can put all the pieces together in chapter two. Paul is telling the Colossians that they have received Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's shorthand. It's just a summary of what Paul already said. Because Epaphras told the Colossians that Jesus had won forgiveness of sins through a sacrificial death. And that through him, forgiveness of sins is freely given to all those who trust in him. Freely. They came to know the grace of God in truth. And those who received the word, those who believed the word, received Jesus Christ by faith. And now Paul writes to them, though he doesn't know them, but he heard about them from Epaphras. Their spiritual life began with belief in the gospel message of grace, free salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying to the Colossians in chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7 is to say, having received that, with that as your foundation, with that as your beginning, with that as that which upon which you are built, as you have received Jesus Christ, on that foundation you are to grow, rooted, and built up in him. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is that upon which they stand. He is the beginning and the ongoing source of the Christian life. 
And so then, therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as an association of churches, which remember is not a list, but rather it is us, as an association of churches, what ought we to do in order to grow, in order to thrive, in order to progress and continue and perpetuate ourselves? Well, we have to start with the beginning and hold fast the beginning. Before all and above all, we must ensure that our foundation, church by church, is the message of grace. The preaching of the true and pure word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is something to be defended. We already read in chapter 2 that there are those who want to lead you astray through vain philosophies, through human traditions. And we've seen this in the history of the church, how many false gospels there are. Remembering with 500 years of Reformation, we think back to Protestantism. We continue to protest against the falsehoods of the Roman Catholic Church and all others who have deviated from the truth of the Word of God. It is something to be maintained, something to be protected, something to be prized above all other things. There is no other way that spiritual life will be created unless the message of grace is regularly and strongly and prominently and clearly and purely preached in our churches. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ. Paul said in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. Christ is the foundation and Christ must be the substance. Christ must be the very matter, the very marrow of our messages, the message of grace. And this, of course, happens above all in the, in the public preaching of the word in the gathered church on the Lord's day. But it also happens, if opportunity legitimately allows it, perhaps at the workplace or in public places as well. And I say as opportunity legitimately allows it because your employer is paying you to work. And so if you stop working to do something like sharing the gospel, then you are robbing your employer. But as opportunities legitimately present themselves, the gospel, the message of grace, is to be proclaimed outside of just the church on the Lord's day. Let me encourage you not to miss the importance of this foundation. If you do not plant seeds, you will not see plants. If we do not begin with proclaiming Christ, preaching the word of truth, the gospel of grace, and if we do not go on by proclaiming Christ, preaching the word of truth, we can expect, we should expect, a swift and sure death for this association of churches. Because if spiritual life, if the life of the church begins with having received Christ by faith in the gospel message of grace, and if we neglect that gospel message of grace, which is the beginning and the ongoing fount, the fountain, the source of our, of our spiritual life, then what are we? We are dead, and we will die. Now, if ever I were preaching to the choir, it is right now. I know that I do not need to convince you or your pastors that they and you should preach a pure gospel in your churches. Nor do I need to convince you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So then my primary concern for our churches as an association is this, and I want to emphasize this angle, this perspective throughout the rest of this sermon. Evangelize, that is preach the gospel to your children. Evangelize, preach the gospel to your children. And I say this to both fathers and mothers. Fathers, invest in your children, not just in preparing them to enter society, but preparing them to enter into eternity. Do not rest until you know that your children understand the true gospel of grace, the free salvation for sinners that is in the blood of Jesus Christ. Do not rest until you know that you have made that known to them and continue to make that known to them. Mothers, you may have even more time with your children than your husbands. Do not rest until you know that your children understand the gospel of grace, the free salvation for sinners in the blood of Jesus Christ. Prepare them not just to enter marriages, but to enter the eternal marriage of Jesus Christ and his church. And I exhort you, do not merely make this a childhood endeavor. Do not cease to evangelize your children when they reach a certain age and it gets a bit more difficult. Do not fall off as they get older. Now putting, out, putting aside those who are incapable of outward calling, the only way that your children will come to know Christ savingly is if Christ is made known to them. And may it please God to give new birth to those whom we have birthed. 
to give eternal life to those whom we have nourished from their first cries. May it please God to populate our churches, to populate this association with those who bear our names and carry our blood, those who are most precious to us. But for that to happen... For the association to continue, we must not only preach to those in church on Sundays and not only make the gospel known to the world outside the church, but to be responsible stewards of the lives that God has placed in our very homes and in our own lives, in our families. And we ought to ensure that they know the message of grace, that they know the word of truth, the good news of free salvation in Jesus Christ, so that they, having received Jesus Christ, the Lord, might walk in him rooted and built up in him just as they were taught. The message of grace is everything. It is the beginning and without it there is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so make that message known purely, faithfully in the church, outside of the church and in your families so that you can say, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Secondly, Paul gives us a model for growth in the Christian life as a whole, collectively, which begins with the message of grace, which is to be received by faith. Secondly, this leads us to the mandates of grace. The mandates of grace. As I was considering putting the outline together, I thought about, number one, evangelize, number two, legalize, but that didn't quite work. So the mandates of grace, it's still a somewhat odd phrase, but you'll understand what I mean if you don't already. Paul's model or program for the Colossians includes much more than beliefs, much more than things that they know and that they trust in. It also includes commands. And these commands are what I'm calling the mandates of grace. Having received Christ by faith, now obey these commands. They are the commands that follow salvation. Romans 10.9 says that we do not merely believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, but we also confess Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, having received Jesus Christ, the Lord, then what do we do? Here in Colossians 2.6, having received Jesus Christ, the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. From the the get-go, from the outset, we acknowledge Jesus as our supreme and loving authority, our Redeemer, our Head, and our Husband. And as we have received him in this manner, we are to walk in him. And the word walk is very important. In fact, it's a word that Paul has already used in Colossians. And so again, we're going to look at chapter 1 to better understand the language Paul uses in chapter 2. But just think about the metaphor of walking. Walking implies going in a certain direction. It implies going somewhere. It implies following a path. And Paul says in Colossians 1, 9 to 10, these words that explain to us what it means to walk as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard about their faith in Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, what is Paul's petition? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so you, you learn about what the Lord desires his people to do. And what does that end up in? Verse 10, so as to, you're filled with the knowledge of what God tells us to do, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so we receive Jesus Christ by faith, acknowledging him as our Lord. And having acknowledged him as our Lord and received him by faith, then we walk in his will. We walk in his commands. We obey the voice of our great shepherd. To walk in Christ is nothing other than to obey all of the commands of Christ to the people of Christ. So what does that include? What do the mandates of grace include? Well, they include certainly the Ten Commandments which Christ did not come to abolish, but to embody. And it includes all of his positive commands as well. In other words, his commands for how we ought to do church, commands that exist purely because Jesus told us to do them. Positive commands, they are added. So we hear the message of grace, we believe the message of grace, and those who respond to the message of grace obey the mandates of grace. Now then, brothers and sisters, if if we 
are to walk in Christ as we have received Christ as an association, we must ensure not only that we preach a pure gospel message of grace, but also that we teach along with that gospel the fullness of Christ's commands. And again, because we are in association with a confession of faith, I'm not especially concerned about whether or not the law of God holds a proper place in our churches. I have confidence that indeed it does. But I look to you again, parents. I look to you again, parents, to ensure that your children know the law of God. Ensure that your children know the law of God. Teach them the Ten Commandments. There's only ten. They know 200 Pokemon. They can learn Ten Commandments. They know all of the crafting materials in Minecraft. They can learn the Ten Commandments. And as you parent them, be sure to point out to them when they break the Ten Commandments. I'm not suggesting that we meticulously nitpick everything they do and every command they break in every way, but rather I am insisting that you make sure you use the Ten Commandments as the standard by which you teach your children the difference between wickedness and righteousness. And if your children have not been born again, if they have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, believed in him, etc., teaching them the law is still very important. They need to know why we say they are sinful. They need to know why Jesus died. We sang previously words to the effect that it was my sin that caused him shame. It was my sin that, that caused him that pain. How can that be? You need the law. You need the law to explain that statement. They need to know the law of God, which God can use to convict them of their sins. But understand, the law cannot save them. The law cannot save them. Do not raise Pharisees. Do not tell them by doing this and doing that and doing this and being a good person, being a good little boy, being a good little girl, then God will accept us. No, certainly not. But they need to know the law because it runs, it, it causes us to run to Jesus Christ when the Lord blesses it. But nor should we hold them at bay from the gospel until we think they have felt the heat of the law long enough. Our confession is anti-preparationism. Anti-telling someone, well, you haven't had quite the experiences that I think you should have in order to validate your Christian experience. No. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, come to the waters of baptism. Surely, certainly pastorally, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, is it not? But we do not create an anxious bench for them. We do not create a waiting space where your experience doesn't quite line up with what I think an experience should be. And so be careful that as you teach them the law, you immediately bring them to the gospel. And if your children know the law and come to Christ by faith, then their transition to serving Christ according to those same laws will be a natural one. As they have received Christ, so they will walk in him, in the laws that they know that they broke, but now they can keep them, not perfectly, but sincerely, and they become perfect in Jesus Christ, their works. Now let me suggest to you a very practical way of doing this. Parents, catechize your children. Catechize your children. Use catechisms to teach your children. Teaching the depths of the Christian faith can be a very difficult and daunting task. And it can be very intimidating to young parents, especially, to think about teaching your children the Christian faith. You may think, I don't know it very well. Maybe I don't know all the Ten Commandments off the top of my head. So how can I teach my children? Well, we cannot let the difficulties lead us to inaction. We need to understand what steps can we take to overcome our ignorance? What steps can we take to overcome perhaps areas of weakness, areas of, of lack in our lives? And catechisms are a wonderful, wonderful tool for helping us to learn for ourselves and to communicate to others the truths of the Christian faith. If you feel inadequate, if you feel unprepared, there's good news. The Christian church has found a way of doing this, and it's been doing it ever since it began. Catechisms have been a part of the church since the age of the apostles. Think about it this way. Catechisms, what they do, why they're so useful, is that they do the work for you. They divide all of theology up into bits and pieces, things that are in such a size that you're able to understand it, you're able to see it, you're able to remember it. 
It's, so it's, it's manageable information. If you say, here's a book on this and a book on that and a book on this and a book on that, okay, it's going to take me some time. That's going to be difficult to wrap my head around all those things. But if you say, here's a question and an answer, and here's a question and an answer, then bit by bit, piece by piece, you can put together the whole thing. Catechisms are very, very helpful. If you want to learn the faith, if you want to teach the faith, use catechisms. Catechisms were one of the strongest tools of Protestant theology as it emerged from Roman Catholicism. And I tried in vain to track down a quote, so I'll have to paraphrase from memory, but a quote in a book that I read some time ago said that the Roman Catholics lamented the use of catechisms in the the Protestant church because as they tried to win the common people back to them, the people had answers for their for their arguments. The people knew what to say. The people actually had understanding. Whereas previously, the common people were ignorant because they were taught that by the obedience of faith, they were to believe all things that the Roman magisterium told to them with the, the Antichrist Pope at the head of the magisterium. And so what the Pope said is faith and practice. You must believe and you must do. You are not allowed to dissent from it. To dissent from it is to be excommunicated. And so the people had no access to the scriptures and their language, etc., 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 which is all to say that when the Protestants started using catechisms, which taught their people the full faith in question and answer format in their own language in ways that they could understand, the Roman Catholics had a much more difficult time winning people back to Rome, sweet Rome. Now, I'm not too worried about you people just needing to be convinced not to go to Rome. I'm not so worried about that. It's just an example of how useful catechisms are and how effective they can be in teaching everyone the Christian faith. And you know what? If you go through the catechism, it will teach the gospel and it will teach you the Ten Commandments and it will teach you the Lord's Prayer, whether you use the Baptist catechism or whether you use an Orthodox catechism, which is the Baptist version of the Heidelberg Catechism. So in both of those, I would encourage you to use them both, whichever works best for you or, or even both. Take advantage of that. There are also children's catechisms. There's a church, uh, Chuck Rennie's church. Is it Sycamore Baptist Church? Sycamore Baptist Church, a church over in, in Ohio. Or is it Indiana? Illinois, excuse me. <laughs> Illinois. It's not in my notes, so I don't, I don't know it. Um, that church has provided us with some children's catechisms. It's what I use with my son. And that it's designed to prepare you for the shorter catechism, uh, which is the same as the Baptist catechism. So there's a variety of options. I'm not telling you this one you must use. I'm just encouraging to you the use of catechisms as we teach our children the law and the gospel. A neglect of catechisms is a neglect of a great treasure. When our Confession of Faith was first published in 1677, not 1689, Its its editors stated this in their preface. They said that the neglect of catechisms and catechizing in their day was an indicator of spiritual decline. They said this, there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day. What did they point to to say was something that was corroding and eroding the foundation of religion in their day? And they said, and that is the neglect of the worship of God in families. The Lord has laid it upon us to catechize and instruct our children that their tender years may be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the scriptures. And so they, they said our families need to be worshiping. And a part of that, they were saying, is to catechize our children. Now, there's a variety of ways to do that. I'm suggesting catechisms to you as the best way to instruct your children. And they will help us to preach the message of grace to our children and to teach the mandates of grace, both the law and the gospel. And when you think about those two things, the law and the gospel, we see that Paul's program for the Colossian church is nothing other than the law and the gospel. As you received Jesus Christ by faith in the gospel, so walk in him according to the law. That's everything. The law and the gospel is the program. It is the model. It is everything in the Christian life. And Paul says this collectively. You Colossians, as you believe the gospel, on that foundation, now walk according to the law. And so we believe in Jesus Christ the Lord. We receive him by faith. And we walk in him, obeying his laws with thanksgiving and joy. Now, this leads us to our third point. We began with the message of grace and then the mandates of grace, the law and the gospel or the gospel and the law. And now thirdly, the means of grace. 
the means of grace. Paul describes the Christian life as beginning by faith in Christ as a response to a message of grace. And he describes the Christian life as a life of obedience on that foundation. As you received, so walk. Now what follows in Colossians 2, 6-7 is simply a deepening and widening and persevering in the law and the gospel. Having been rooted in Christ, we are built up in Christ and established in the faith. We grow in our faith. We go in our walk. Our roots grow deeper and our branches reach farther with more mature fruit. Paul says, looking back at our verses again, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, we know that the Christian life begins with the gospel and it continues with the law and the gospel. So what is it that feeds us and sustains us along the way as we walk and as we grow? What is our natural diet? What is our natural exercise as Christians? How is it that the root, Christ, feeds the branches, us? And the answer is the means of grace. The means of grace. Now, by the means of grace, I refer to the word read and preached, the word made visible in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the word expressed in prayer and praise, the things that we do in the church. The means of grace are those ordinary and regular activities that we participate in as an assembled body on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people, expecting the Lord's blessings through the Lord's spirit. Now, the reason why the means of grace are our, are our continual diet is that they continually present to us the law and the gospel. The word read and preached declare the law and the gospel. The word read certainly will. The word preached must and ought to declare the law and the gospel. The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, declare the law and the gospel. Our prayers and praises, if they are formed and informed by the scriptures, will reflect the law and the gospel. Such that when we faithfully and regularly participate in those means what we are continually feeding on and being fed by is Jesus Christ the root. Christ the head, Jesus Christ the Lord. Because the law and the gospel will simply point you to Christ, to faith in him and walking in him. And so if the means of grace bring the law and the gospel to us regularly, repeatedly, continually, ordinarily, then Jesus Christ is being made known to us regularly, repeatedly, ordinarily. Our sermons preach Jesus Christ the Lord. The word read declares Jesus Christ the Lord. Baptism and the Lord's Supper declare Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul says in Colossians 3 that the word of Christ ought to dwell among us in our praises. And the same is true of our prayers. And if Christ is your diet, if Christ is your food, if Christ is your IV, if Christ is your root, then you will bear fruit. You will grow rooted and established in him. And therefore, we as an association must prize and value and emphasize and be faithful in distributing the means of grace. They're just what we do. And if you do something else, well, don't. <laughs> Stop. And if we fail to do this, if we deprive ourselves or our churches of the Christ-ordained regimen of diet and exercise for spiritual well-being and growth, what's the result? What sickly and man-centered churches will we have? Well, we do this because we want to do it. Well, Jesus has given us a model. As he, before he ascended on high, he told, told his disciples, go preach the message of grace. And those who respond to it are to be baptized, which is the first mandate of grace. And then they are to be taught to do all the things that I commanded you. And when you are faithful to do all the things that I've commanded to you, I promise you, 
I will be present with you unto the end of the age. And so as we obey the mandate, as we obey our Savior, who mandated us to perform the means of grace, to participate in the means of grace, we must and can expect that Jesus Christ will be present and will bless us through those things, which makes perfect sense when we've already said they all present Christ to us in the law and the gospel. When God promises you something, you have a covenantal right to quote-unquote, demand that he keep that promise. Now, we're not demanding as though God is not keeping his promises, but I'm saying you have a right to it. You can claim it. You can say, we can pray and we ought to pray. Jesus, you have promised us that you will be present with us. You will bless us. And so now as we obey your commands by reading the word, by preaching the word, by seeing the word and tasting the word and feeling the word, referring to baptism, as we pray the word, as we sing the word in our praises, bless us, bless us. And Jesus will do that because he's promised. And he will cease to be God and all things will cease to be if he does not keep that promise. He who promised is faithful. He will do it. Now here again, I want to address parents. Parents, the way you talk about church in your family is very important. The way that you treat church in your family is very important. Speak of church to your children in such a way that reflects the profundity, the deepness, and the reality of what we do. We aren't just going to church. We are going to hear the word of Jesus Christ. We are going to sing the praises of Jesus Christ. We are going to see the promises of Christ's covenant made visible to his people. Teach them the value of church, not just as some club as some custom, as some ritual, as some routine. Well, it's what we do. Let's go to church. But as the meeting place of heaven and earth, week by week, as Jesus meets with his people and feeds them from his own infinite grace and goodness. Is that the perspective that we put before our children as we speak to them about church? My son, my daughter, I want you to understand what we're doing, why this is so important Yes, we're going to church. I understand that your little toe hurts. We're going to church. Do you realize what we would be missing if we didn't go? Oh, yes, I know that you're a little tired, but do you realize what we would be missing if we did not go? My leg is broken. Okay, well, you need to stay home, perhaps. But how how often do we belittle the means of grace? How often do we overlook them or treat them as unimportant when we carelessly or without much reason neglect them? Yes, Jesus told us to keep all his commands. And yeah, he promised he would be with us until the end of the age when we obey those commands and do the things he told us to do. But nah, not today. Not this time. Next week. You see, when we start putting it that way, it's, it's not just wrong, but it is highly irreverent. The one who is to judge all the world, the living and the dead, the Savior of the earth, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of all creation, the Lord of the old creation and the new creation has told me to do these things and promised to bless me in them and I will carelessly do something else? You see, we need to, to instill in our children what church is and show them the importance of it. And then as the Lord blesses us, our quarterly gatherings grow and grow and grow and grow. Because the association is you. And you can expect Christ's blessing in those things. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. The mediator of grace. The mediator of grace. And this point is intentionally superfluous. It's unnecessary. It's extra. We don't need it. Why? Because we've already made this point. What point? Jesus Christ is the mediator of grace. Grace. What's grace? Free favor and kindness from God to sinners, to us in and through Jesus Christ. God having mercy on, God being kind to those who do not deserve it. God giving blessings freely to others. That is grace. Yes, yes, we know that. We know that Jesus Christ is the mediator of grace. Why do you have a whole point about this? Well, look at how Christ-centered Paul's words are. In just these two verses, look at Colossians 2, 6-7 again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If your eternal life begins with Jesus Christ and continues with Jesus Christ and lives on Jesus Christ, what conclusion, what result can there be when we magnify Christ in all of these things? What can possibly come from that other than abundant thanksgiving? Paul says abounding in thanksgiving. Jesus Christ the Lord in him, in him abounding in thanksgiving. If we recognize the mediator of grace at the heart of all of these things, and if we give him the glory that he deserves as the center and source of all of this, then we cannot but be led to abundant thanksgiving. Why? Because we have received all of this freely. Freely, brothers and sisters. Just think about the glory of that with me. We believed a message of grace, a message of great, gratuitous salvation. Why do I call it gratuitous? That's a word for gracely, gracious. When you eat at a restaurant, you sometimes call the tip a gratuity. By paying the bill, you have fulfilled your contractual obligation to the restaurant. The menu stipulated X amount of money for a product. They brought the product. You ate the product. You paid X amount. The gratuity, therefore, is gratuitous money. It's free extra money for the server. Now, I'm not dissuading you from tipping your servers as I've worked in restaurants and they live off of your gratuity. The point is we know this language. It's, it's free. It's extra. I paid the bill. I'm just going to give you some money. <laughs> That's gratuity. We, we give to our churches out of obligation. The Lord has commanded us to do this. And then we come to the association and we give a gratuity. We say, here's extra money. I give it freely. Salvation in Jesus Christ is free. It's gratuitous. We live in Southern California. I'm sure you've seen signs that say gratis, free in Spanish. The Spanish word for freely is gratuitamente, gratuitously. I wish we could use the word gratuitously to mean freely because it has such a close relation to grace. How do, if we say the Lord gives you salvation graciously, that, that gets it across, but I want to say gratuitously, absolutely free. Jesus gives us salvation gratuitamente, gratuitously. And he presents to us, he mediates to us in himself grace, salvation, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now I say again that this point is superfluous because Jesus has been everywhere all along the way. But it is necessary because Christ deserves the glory. Christ deserves to be brought to the front and the center. He deserves all of that. He deserves the honor and the glory and the power. So in your churches, brothers and sisters, do not be content that Christ is mentioned along the way in the word preached and pictured and prayed. That's the means of grace. Go out of your way to point him out, to make him clear, to proclaim him with the same redundancy and repetition that Paul does. Saturate, oversalt, overpepper your sermons, your means of grace, everything with Jesus Christ. You can't oversaturate with Christ, but you get what I'm saying. Go out of your way to make sure that everyone sees that Jesus is the heart and soul of all of this. The message of grace is nothing without the mediator of grace. The mandates of grace are scary without the mediator. Do you want to go to the law without the mediator, without Jesus Christ? You'll be slain. The law will destroy you. Through the, no- through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if you go to that law without the mediator of grace, you are in big trouble. The means of grace are, are strange group activities without the mediator. Remove Jesus, the mediator of grace, from the means of grace... And you're just a group of people singing some songs and reading a book and eating some food and drinking some wine and going in the pool. If you don't say this is all about Jesus Christ, it's just a bunch of stuff we do. Parents, make Christ a constant feature in your home. Give him centrality. Bring him to the forefront of your children's eyes. If you're a sports fan, uh, I don't know, USC or UCLA, or we have every sports team, we have two of them, pick your, pick your team. It only takes one item to 
to show you're a fan. I have a ball cap or something or a shirt or a flag. But whatever your favorite team is or your favorite thing, you probably have many items that say that you're a fan. I'm a Boston Bruins fan, and I have three Boston Bruins sweaters. I have a Boston Bruins flag. I have Boston Bruins mini hockey sticks. I have a Boston Bruins gnome. I have a whole bunch of Boston Bruins stuff. It's all extra. It only takes one thing to tell you I'm a Boston Bruins fan. If you like Pokemon cards, it only takes one card to tell someone I like Pokemon, but you have hundreds of them probably. You see, what you love, you get lots of it, and you put it all over the place. You want people to know. And so if Christ is everything to us, then we should show that. It should show up in our homes. So it's not just my dad's a Boston Bruins fan, but my dad loves Jesus way more than the Bruins. Why, does he, what, why would that be? We need to put Christ front and center in our homes, more so than the things that we love on this earth. If we love Christ and esteem him above all else, let our lives show it by by proportion. We give earthly things an, an inordinate proportion of love. I need lots of things to show I'm a fan, even though it only takes one. Well, I love Jesus Christ, and it only takes my children knowing that I'm a Christian to tell them that Christ is in my life, but... I want to show that over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, if we are faithful as as churches, as an association, us, if we are faithful to preach the message of grace, to teach the mandates of grace, to participate in the means of grace, looking always to and praising the name of the mediator of grace, then we can rest in the fact that he will build his church. In Acts, those who received the word were baptized, they persevered, etc. Later in that chapter, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Who added to the church? Well, Peter just preached such a good church a sermon that all the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus a little bit ago, they decided to change their minds. No, the Lord added daily those who were being saved. And so, our duty is to fear God and keep his commandments. Our duty is to do that which has been revealed to us. And is there any better program, is there any better list of things that we need to do than the message of grace, the mandates of grace, the means of grace, looking to the mediator of grace in all of them? What a wonderful, wonderful program and model has been given to us as churches of Jesus Christ and as an association of churches. We can rest that Jesus will build his church and that he will be with us to the end of the age, and that his elect will most surely be saved. He will not fail to keep his promise. He will not fail at all. Well, in conclusion, throughout the sermon, I've already given a variety of applications and commands, so I want to conclude with this. Tonight, we have all heard of the mediator of grace, Jesus Christ the Lord. So I ask you all today, using the words of Paul, have you received Jesus Christ the Lord? Have you received Jesus Christ the Lord? Have you believed in his name? Have you trusted in who he is and what he has done? Do you have redemption in his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins? Are your sins forgiven? Have you escaped the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son? Have you believed in the good news of free salvation, the word of truth, the gospel, which comes through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Have you received it? You must answer that question. And you must know that we receive it freely. Freely. We come as wicked sinners. We come because we are wicked sinners. Because Jesus won salvation for all those who trust in him. A particular Baptist in the 17th century said, it cost him dearly that it might cost us Nothing. So I say to you today, do not reject the message of grace. Do not reject the mediator of grace, but believe in him, receive him, resting upon him, believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing him as Lord, believing that he rose from the dead. And what do the scriptures say? If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, what did the scriptures say? What is God's promise to us? If you believe that, 
you will be saved. So either God is a liar or you will not receive by faith the free salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. But the scriptures also say in the same passage in Romans 10 that all those who come to to Jesus Christ, all those who come to him by faith, they will not be cast out and they will not be put to shame. They will not be told, well, you you don't quite meet the criteria. Everyone's a sinner. We all meet the criteria. And no one will be put to shame. No one will say, you know, I invested in this for eternal life and I didn't get eternal life. No one's going to say, I didn't get out what I was expecting. Well, if you're expecting salvation in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you get. No one will find him worse than he promised. They'll find him better than he promised because we do not fully understand the salvation that's given to us. So as we grow as Christians, as we grow in our faith, our minds boggle. Our minds fail to fully comprehend the fullness and the infinity of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so no one will be put to shame. No one will say, this, this wasn't as good as it was supposed to be. This was an infomercial. I ordered this from the internet, and now I'm going to leave a one-star review. No one will say that. Everyone will say, his love surpasses my understanding. The word of truth, the gospel, the message of grace is everything. The mediator of grace is everything. And having received Jesus Christ by faith, therefore, brethren, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for the message of grace. How we thank you for free salvation in your Son. How we thank you that you qualified us for a heavenly inheritance. How we thank you that you transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. How we thank you that we have received your Son by faith freely. How we thank you that we can now go to the law as a light and a guide for us. How we thank you that the law is not that which condemns us, but that which, which shows us the way to live out our thankful and grateful and joyous obedience. How we thank you for the means of grace that continue to feed and sustain us week after week, showing us the law and the gospel that is showing us Jesus Christ. How we thank you for this association of churches. How we thank you for the power of the resurrection, the power of the new creation, impacting each and every one of us according to your will and giving us new life and bringing us here even today. Our Father in heaven, we are filled. We are abounding in thanksgiving because of the message of grace, all of which we have received freely through the mediator of grace. Jesus Christ, how we thank you and we praise you, giving you glory and honor because you have done all of this for us, that it might be free for us. You became incarnate for us. You lived a life of perfect obedience for us. You laid down your life for us. You rose again for us. You ascended for us. You are seated for us. You continue to govern and reign for us. We are filled with abounding and abundant thanksgiving. Holy Spirit, how we thank you for applying to us that which Jesus has won for us. How we thank you for guiding us into all truth. How we thank you for feeding us through the means of grace, empowering us, giving us strength, spiritually speaking. We praise you and we thank you and we are filled with abounding and abundant thanksgiving. Oh God, our Father, we thank you by the Spirit and through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.